Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Chickermain, co-director of alumni relations at Hopkins Biotech Network, and I'm joined here with our co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer, editor-in-chief of The Transcript for Hopkins Biotech Network. Our guest today is Janice Logan. She's a partner at Morgan Lewis, a multinational law firm with 31 offices that span multiple continents and whose clients include more than three quarters of the Fortune 100 companies. She's an alumni of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She did her PhD in the biomedical engineering program, and she was also an aspiring intellectual property lawyer. She went on to do her JD at Georgetown University Law. Hi, Janice. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for your invitation. So could you start with just telling us a little bit about your early background and what sort of sparked your interest in science? In science? Wow. So I was interested in science since kindergarten, probably. (laughs) I knew I was going to be in science from very, very young age. Actually, all my um, family members are also scientists. So I didn't really have a choice. (laughs) in a way. I used to play with circuits since elementary school, so I had no doubt that I was going into the field of science. Actually, it came to a surprise to me that I was interested in IP law at the end, and I ended up going to law school. I'm the only lawyer in my family. During my PhD at Hopkins, I was an inventor on a couple of patents, and that's how I got to know about patents. And I, I have to thank Dr. Jennifer Elisev, my advisor, who's also a vivid entrepreneur. And uh, she uh, started her own company when I was in her lab. And uh, uh, that's what sparked us to be more IP conscious, intellectual property conscious, and to be able to protect our uh, inventions. So I got to work on a few patents and I got very interested in IP. And I was really into law and order at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I started watching yeah. law and order. I, I thought I would be a lawyer, like law and order, <laughs> which is quite different. But um, that's what triggered me <laughs> to be interested in law, to be honest. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so in my third year or fourth year of uh, PhD, when I was looking for uh, an alternative path, um, I looked into um, going into law and talked to a few people, and uh, I, I don't regret it since then. You applied directly out of graduate school, or did you intern at a law firm in between? So I had to fund it myself somehow, and I didn't want to get a huge student loan. Right. So I um, had to uh, make money. And uh, I learned that one way to do it is to work as a patent agent. And I will talk about it in more detail later. But I applied to Georgetown part-time program, evening program, so that I can work full-time during the daytime. So I applied in my last year of PhD uh, without knowing that I would be able to graduate, actually. As you know, it's so unpredictable when you're going to graduate, right? But in my uh, fifth year, um, 
I, I knew I was close at least. And I thought that if I don't graduate before the end of September, I can delay law school for another year. So I just applied and I got in. But uh, so I, I had no uh, break in between um, PhD and law school. So you had some early, I would say, exposure to IP law by being an inventor on a couple of patents. So it's one thing to have an interest, think, oh, maybe law might be interesting. It's a completely separate thing to say, this is what I want to do. How did you make that decision? That's actually a really good question. So um, if you're not sure, I don't recommend you going to law school right after PhD as I did. Although um, I was lucky and it was good for me, <laughs> but a lot of people actually spend one year uh, working as a patent agent uh, in this field and and decide a year later whether you want to uh, pursue this career or not. I think that's the safest path. I recommend you to uh, take the patent bar exam, which is an exam that's coordinated by U.S. Patent Office. And you can Google U.S. Patent Office patent bar exam. And uh, you will have to study hard for a month or so, but it's not difficult to pass. Uh, you go to one of these computerized, like th those uh, places where you take GRE and you take the computerized patent bar exam and you get to know whether you pass it or not right away. That gives you the certificate to be able to communicate with U.S. Patent Office on behalf of inventors. And you'll be hired with biotech PhD and patent bar exam um, passed. You, you will be hired um, as some law firm as a patent agent. And, and you can work um, for a year or a half year and make a decision later. So what does a patent agent do? Patent agents uh, usually work on communicating with USPTO and inventors. Using your technical background, you can communicate better with inventors who's uh, the expert in this field. So you work with inventors and learn their new invention and draft on application specification about their invention and you file it with US Patent Office and communicate with examiners, patent examiners in USPTO to explain why their inventions are patentable. Because if you invent something that everyone know about already, USPTO is not going to grant you the right to monopolize it for 20 years. So you need to convince USPTO that your invention is noble and not obvious. So that, that is the main job of a patent agent, usually, uh, using your technical background and convincing the US examiners that um, the inventions of our clients are uh, patentable. And so what are some of the differences between patents related to biotech and inventions in these sectors versus let's say, in a traditional engineering uh, patent without a healthcare application? Oh, that's another good question. So first of all, biotech inventions are more difficult to explain and more complicated in that it's hard to write about. And uh, like the application itself probably will be over 100 pages versus uh, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering applications are about 20 pages. So you have to explain this very difficult technology in a simpler term and, and to be able to uh, explain why 
uh, what you are doing is different from what other people are doing in the field. And it's more difficult in biotech in a way because of the complicated technology. And for that reason, a lot of companies, a lot of clients in biotech require their patent agents and attorneys to have PhD. So if you want to go to legal field uh, in biotech area, I highly recommend having PhD. Having master's or an uh, undergrad alone is not going to make you competitive in the field. For in mechanical, electrical field, uh, undergrad degree is fine. Or even chemistry. Uh, chemistry, actually, uh, undergrad degree is fine. Or master's will be good, but undergrad alone still will be good. But for biotech, you definitely need PhD. That's the huge difference. And so what are some of the differences if you have your PhD, you have your uh, JD, and now you're able to go work as a lawyer, a patent mm -hmm. lawyer, what's the, what are some of the differences between working for a large firm like yours with multiple interests versus if you worked for a very specific like biotech or pharma company as their personal lawyer? Uh, you mean like in-house uh, yeah, sorry. I think the, one of the main difference is that in a large law firm like ours, you get to learn totally different invention every day, not just their technology, one particular client's technology. I actually work for many, many different technologies, uh, uh, including diagnostic, pharmaceutical, the diversity of technologies that you are going to learn in a law firm definitely is a lot broader than uh, working for a company. So working for a single company as an in-house counsel, you of course will learn more in-depth knowledge in that field, but the breadth of technology will be limited. And at what stage in the drug development process are patents on drugs typically issued? Is it discovery stage or development stage? Usually when you have first in vivo data, Actually, uh, our clients, a lot of our clients actually file application as a provisional application when they have idea, but within a year, they will have in vivo data for the complete application. But usually for drug development or any treatment uh, application, usually, not always, but usually we recommend having at least one in vivo data. What about for medical devices? Is it prior to a minimum viable product? So medical device is a very tricky field because medical device can be used in treatment or diagnostic or for uh, surgery for treatment or or opening an envelope. I, I don't know. <laughs> so, so depending on what that med medical device is used for, you have to prove whether your invention is enabled, enabled, whether... Uh, one of ordinary skill in the art would have reasonable expectation of success by reading your application. And uh, if it's a medical device for treatment, you will need more data and in vivo data even. But if it's just for um, um, opening an envelope <laughs> during the larger process, you probably will not need too much data. So I think it's case by case. And I'm glad you brought that up. I think for students wondering about whether, like, let's say their thesis project is working on a very specific small molecule. 
And in this case, they might want to potentially get a patent on it and either for the way it's used or for the small molecule itself. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between like these method of use patents and what the burden of um, proof is for them? That's a really great question. So when you work on small molecules, um, if the small molecule itself is noble and not obvious, the chemical structure is noble and not obvious, that's easy to be patented, right? You probably don't need much data because all you need to show is without use, whether you can make and use that chemical compound. It doesn't have to be uh, directed to a specific treatment. But if that small molecule was known in the art already, and you found new use for it, then yes, you need that data for the new use. You had a lot of experience as a graduate student uh, getting patents and working towards the space. What were some of the learning hurdles that you came across and that you think you know grad students today might struggle with if they're just beginning to look at how to get a patent? So what is scientifically noble and not obviousness is not really the same as patentability. <laughs> so, so that's like the main thing that we struggle all the time with inventors and um, people in the early stage of uh, this career. Because even if the scientists think they made great invention, it actually may not be patentable, unfortunately. Um, so you do need to know the law and case law and the case law changes the legal scheme of, in this field pretty dramatically in biotech area. As you know, there is a huge issue with patentable subject matter in diagnostic field and even probes and primers, shorter sequence of long DNA sequence is not patentable in US anymore. But depending on how you frame it, you can still patent it. So you actually need to know the details of the legal jargon <laughs> to be able to determine what's patentable. But I think the struggle that everyone has in the beginning is that what's scientifically <laughs> noble and unobvious. You may be publishing in Nature and Science, but you may not get a patent. Isn't there a specific statute where if you're trying to patent, let's say something with a nucleic acid sequence, it has to deviate a certain amount from its natural occurring sequence? So you're absolutely right. It's called 35 USC 101. Uh, that's the law that's related to patents of a subject matter. For example, when you uh, want to amplify your DNA sequence, you use probes, uh, primers, right? But uh, a pair of primer can be... Um, very scientifically noble and not obvious if you found one pair of primer that actually works better over like thousands of other primer pairs. But the problem is the primer itself is only a short sequence extracted from the long sequence of DNA. So, it, so the case law now says it exists in the nature. Although not in that isolated form, but it was existing in the nature. So on top of it, all primer is doing is it's hybridizing to another <laughs> DNA sequence, which they do in nature anyways. So because it's a product of nature and there is nothing, uh, there's no something more. That's what they call it. There's no something more to uh, the nat natural product. So, so it's not uh, patentable. And that case law applies to 
like for example drug uh, that's developed from extract from uh, like for example famous uh, Korean ginseng if you find an effective compound from uh, Korean ginseng extracted from Korean ginseng it will not be patentable because it did occur in nature uh, and all you did was just extract it. So there are other tricks to make it patentable, such as mixing it with uh, um, like a carrier to increase the solubility of the effective drug. So there are many tr tricks to make it a uh, patentable subject matter, but uh, it will be case by case and it's not easy. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier is the complexity of scientific patents versus mechanical engineering or broadly engineering patents. And pharmaceutical therapeutics are becoming more and more complex. So we've, we've talked about small molecule drugs. You mentioned biologics, perhaps antibodies, and now we've just talked about nucleic acid. But the complexity is e increasing by orders of magnitude with gene therapies and even more with cell therapies. How is the IP landscape evolving to accommodate those more complex therapies? Hmm, that's a really good question that I never thought about. I feel like it's personal view, but I feel like the IP legal field in US is preventing inventors to get a very broad patent that's going to prevent other competitors to come in the market. So um, I, I think even in diagnostic uh, for the same reason of 101, it's been very difficult to obtain patent, which means the companies cannot prevent other companies to come into the market by patenting their technology too broadly. Antibody, technically, what's important is which antigen antibodies are binding to, right? That's the essence of it. Now, uh, without restricting the structure of antibodies specifically down to the sequence, it, it's difficult to claim broad genus of antibody based on the target antigen. We have requirement in, this, uh, in IP that in specification for a patent application, uh, the specification must describe the invention uh, sufficiently enough so that one of ordinary skill in the art can read the spec and recognize that inventors was in possession of the invention at the time of filing. That limits the scope of the patent very narrow, very narrow. So in a way, I think we are evolving that each patent, uh, the claims are getting narrower so that other people can patent on like other antibodies with the same antigen target. I'm just curious. So you are also fluent in Japanese and Korean, right? And so do you also work internationally and have clients internationally? And I'm just wondering, like, I, this is something I can't begin to wrap my mind around is how, the challenges of navigating IP law in the U.S. and other countries and trying to work with a company, trying to get devices approved in both. Like, what, what is that? So that's a, another great question. So I want to point out that I'm a U.S. attorney. I'm not Japanese or Korean attorney. So I help our international clients in Japan and Korea talking to their inventors in their native language so that I can understand their invention better and help them get strong, better US patents. 
but I don't help them getting strong uh, patents in Japan or Korea. So for domestic clients, I do work for a lot of domestic clients as well. For domestic clients, I know enough, a, a little bit of Japanese and Korean law that I can um, good application internationally. But when it comes to uh, prosecuting it, negotiating with Japanese patent office and Korean patent office, I work separately with Japanese attorneys and Korean attorneys uh, and rely on their knowledge and, and legal um, expertise. If you want to practice Japanese or Korean patent law or Chinese patent law, you do need the local uh, uh, certificate. Can you describe a little bit about what your day-to-day is like and what your work environment is like? So usually, usually if I'm in the office, and it doesn't change too much, but whenever I go into office, I start with my emails. I get over 200 emails per day. So whenever I go into office, uh, I check about 100 emails that came in overnight, which takes like two hours. (laughs) And uh, throughout uh, responding to emails and assigning work, uh, my assistant comes in and tells me what I need to do. And uh, throughout the day, I, mostly I have a lot of meetings, meetings internally and uh, with clients. And uh, um, I think half of my day is probably meetings. And the other half is writing, writing patent applications and writing responses to U.S. patent office, writing memo. And even during this COVID period, one third of my time probably is meeting and two thirds is writing. What does the corporate hierarchy look like at a law firm? So when you go in as patent agent, you probably are the one with least experience. And then, and then you go to law school and become first year associate and we call them junior associates. And then the third year and fourth years are mid-level associates. And fifth year, sixth year, and on are senior associates. And then hopefully you will make partner. You become eligible for partnership in seventh year, but usually people make partner in 10th year or so. And depending on law firms, you start as an income partner or equity partner. So income partners are partners, but they still get salary and you are not on, you don't have equity in the firm. And equity partners are the partners with equity, like stock in the firm, and they have higher voting power. What personality types and soft skills would you say are amenable to success in IP law? So as a lawyer, I think writing skill is must, but verbal skills is good to have, but not necessarily, especially in IP. So I think whatever characteristic you have, I think you can make it work. Oh, and another thing that I want to emphasize is um, when I was in science, we had this perception of lawyers being evil and and people still joke about it. And as an IP attorney, especially, uh, we're trying to help the scientists to monetize their invention. Without IP, without patent, you cannot monetize your invention because if anyone can copy it, why would anyone pay you money for your invention, right? So I actually really am proud to be a patent attorney. So I think a lot of impressions people have of law is that it's very heavily male-dominated. Yeah, so, so, I, I, so that's a really good point. And I, I want to point out that it's true 
in legal field in general, I was the only female ever made to partner in our DC uh, patent group in 40 years. I saw a lot of female uh, friends, uh, associates leaving the firm after they have kids because the hours are long, I'll be honest. The hours are long. So they wanted to spend more time with their kids, which is great. I have to say female-male ratio is actually almost 50-50 in the first and second year. As the higher uh, associate and, and partner, it becomes very, very slanted. So I've been working with male colleagues in most of my career, and it was rare for me to work with a female associate or partner. And uh, uh, I actually felt like I was one of them. I went out to drink with them. I uh, went to baseball games with them. Uh, and I liked them. I didn't realize it, but later I realized I'm talking and thinking like 40-year-old Caucasian male. My <laughs> other female friends like, like had no interest in whatever I was saying. I was like, what is going on? And I didn't realize it um, until later. So I didn't really switch the code or anything. I actually am trying to switch my code back to 40-year-old Asian female. <laughs> uh, so, Yeah, I think you bring up a, a good point. There's a lot of parallels I know with academia. Usually in PhD programs for biology, it's about a 50-50 uh, split. And then as you move, like you said, higher and higher up the hierarchy and get into the like tenure track professor, you tend to get a drop off. To be honest, before I had my kid, I never thought it was this big deal. If, I mean, I am doing it, but I still thought it would not be a big deal. I thought, oh, we ha I'm making enough money so that I can hire the nanny. And we have a daycare on the first floor of our office. So what we do is we, my kid has been going to the daycare since he was six weeks old. <laughs> on the first floor of our office and I can drop by to check on him like during lunchtime and like whenever I want. So it was perfect. And he's been going to that daycare since, um, again, week six. And a lot of people ask me, how, Janice, how are you going to, uh, um, how are you going to work harder as a partner when you just gave birth to a kid. And I always answer, not a problem. I have everything sorted out. I have daycare right there. I have supportive husband who works nine to five. I, my, I really thought it was nothing. And then I had kids. I was like, oh my God, I was so wrong. <laughs> Very wrong. All the support system is good and it's a big help, but you still have to print a lot of hours yourself and and without actually having the kid i don't think you realize i want to point out that you can still do it like a lot of women think that they cannot do it or a lot of women think that you need to either give up on your child um, or wait until you make partner to have a kid i hear that all the time but but i disagree um you can still do it it just will be harder <laughs> this is hard but you can do it <laughs> So I really uh, hope that no one gives up. Did you change uh, firms at all when before you landed at your current one? Uh, so that's another great question. I worked in a small boutique firm as a patent agent in DC. Um, and then after second year, so I moved to another firm in California. 
I came back to DC. So this is my third job, third office, Morgan Lewis. And I never left it. And I've been here for more than 10 years. So one advice that I have is anywhere you go, there will be pros and cons. And grass is greener all the time. And uh, after moving a few firms, like third one, um, I realized it's better to just stay and change your environment than just move to a greener looking place because you will find another problem. So that's why I decided that I'm going to stay in my firm and I'm going to make it better. So related to location, which is something you brought up, let's say I've, I've completed my PhD, I've completed my JD, and now I want to go work at a law firm. Should I be looking at specific firms? Should I be looking at for specific hubs where there are a lot of law firms? How should I go about that? Location-wise, if you study at Georgetown uh, or school in D.C., I highly recommend staying in this area because this is kind of a patent booming area because USPTO is in Virginia right there. So you will have plenty of jobs and job security around here. Actually, where you graduate from law firm, you will definitely get more recruiting uh, events and recruiting opportunities in the local law firms. But if you want to go out of your state of law firm, you have to do the legwork. To go up the ladder uh, for the higher pay, I recommend being in the main office, not even a branch office. So a lot of laws in IP or otherwise are based on precedents that are set by cases. And cases all have stories behind them. Some of them are very colorful and interesting. So are there any landmark cases that come to mind that have set important precedents in biotech and pharma sector that you find particularly interesting? You know, that's a lawyer's job. Lawyers make it colorful and interesting for each case, right? Every single case is interesting. U.S. is one of very uh, only two or three countries in the entire world, uh, which is preventing patenting of uh, primer or probes from the, the DNA. And uh, that was from a breast cancer detection. And uh, Angelina Jolie was like a, <laughs> a huge part of this um, case that she really advocated for um, um, patent ineligibility, not patenting the breast cancer gene for this case. But on the other side, the company wanted to make money because it took them a significantly long time to find that sequence, right? To find that breast cancer gene, it wasn't easy, right? It wasn't invention, but um, they couldn't patent it. So um, I think that was an interesting case, definitely. Another interesting case is where uh, a method of detecting father's DNA from pregnant mother's blood. In pregnant mom's blood, the kid's DNA is flowing a little bit, very, very little amount is flowing in pregnant mother's uh, blood. So it's actually creepy in a way because that means my husband's DNA was flowing in my blood, by the way. So <laughs> that actually is a little creepy part. But, but the method of detecting this father's DNA from mother's blood was patented and it was really a great invention, right? Like to be able to detect your 
um, uh, kids uh, genetic defect in early stage uh, without the possibility of hurting the fetus from the blood because before you had to stick the needle. It's scary, right? But this uh, patent, this patented technology um, um, enabled us to um, do all the detection from the blood rather than sticking the needle through the placenta. So, um, so that's great, right? But, but that case said that it's not patentable. It's, everything was known, every step was known. Uh, the, the step of amplifying the DNA, the step of detecting DNA was known and, and there's uh, no something new. So that was another case um, that I thought was very interesting. I think they found another way to patent it recently, actually this year. But at that time, the patent got invalidated and uh, um, that was a huge deal in my opinion. Thank you, Janice, so much for your time and for sharing your perspectives on IP law and your experiences as a lawyer with us today. And, and uh, Roshan and, and Jenna, I thank you. I, I really hope everyone else will benefit from this. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. Visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glatzer. And I'm Roshan Chickermain. Thank you for listening.